Hello everyone and welcome to What Would The Smart Party Do? I'm here again, back once again with the Renegade Master. How are you doing, Baz? D4 damage for the ill behaviour. <laughs> I'm really good. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's time to talk about sequels and returns and reboots and remixes. So You're really good. Oh, here we go. There he is, that's the voice in the background. We've got Matt Hart here from Steamforge Games and other exciting places. How are you doing, Matt? Uh, very well, very well. I, you know, every time I come on here, uh, I am in awe of how seamlessly you guys weave things together. It's flawless. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. We're not used to compliments. That took us aback a little bit. It's yeah. print stick, really. <laughs> That's all we do. Print stick and post-it notes. Much like your GM oh. prep, Matt. <laughs> do you know what I had to I was a little bit uncomfortable because everyone could kind of see the uh, the man behind the curtain last night such was yeah. the uh, group around the table yeah for those not following along at home uh, Matt and I are in the same game group and uh, we had seven people around the table last night so there was no room yeah. for all your massive screens and all your obfuscation we could see what you were doing that's true although I don't tend to use a screen so much do I? I mean I use a laptop which is I guess um, an accidental screen but um I yeah, I saw YouTube. a Twitter thread where there was like about 400 people deep um, talking about whether you should use a DM screen or not. <laughs> and you, you do wonder, is that what Twitter was invented for? I guess. We've not done a podcast on it yet, but it's a matter of time, surely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, what edition then of D&D are we playing? Because there's, there's many editions. Uh, we were playing 5th fifth, fifth edition because we're, we're cool kids and we're, uh, we're, we're current and, and up to speed with things. We're living on the edge of playing the uh, five-year-old game right there, mate. Yeah. <laughs> and is it is it the best edition of D&D? Uh, no. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and as chairman, I'll cast the designing vote. <laughs> Once I've heard the arguments from both sides. So I think this is this is probably some of what we're going to talk about tonight. Yeah. Is there's been a bunch of editions, not even whole numbers for D&D. There's been 3.5 and other things, and Pathfinder's mm. offshot from it, and there's always our games, and there's all kinds of things, 13th Age, for example, that possibly count as D&D. Uh, but what was wrong with D&D in the first place? Why has it gone through iterations? Has it gone better or worse? Has it been a roller coaster? And, you know, what what is a new edition for? So we're not just going to talk about D&D, but as you played it last night, let's let's just touch on that. We've got two different opinions there. One of your things is the best edition for now, and yeah. it doesn't. So so what's your, what is your, like, your top thing about it, or your, your top reason why you think it is or isn't? A good edition. Well, it's it's nice that we can have edition conversations these days because it, it was not yeah. that long ago it would have been edition wars, and maybe it still yeah. will be. And um, I don't know, maybe people will be listening to this podcast and start getting a bit sort of spittle flecked around the edges of their mouths and swivel eyed and getting all upset because for a very long time you weren't able to have these discussions without somebody, you know, rage quitting the table. And um, so it's quite nice. I think I think people can have a slightly more objective view about their edition of choice these days and you're right mate it's not just D&D is it I mean we'll get on to some of the other games that are doing this but the the new edition has probably been supplanted by the reboot or the sequel or the however you want to describe it now as the classics come back from the past but yeah D&D's into number five but it really depending on the numbering system it could be into number nine depending on mm. what you want to fold into it so um, why do I like it at the moment I like it because it's kind of it's kind of this is faint praise but it's a real kind of compromise edition so it's had all the rough edges kind of sanded off um 
and it's not got anything to make people really angry with it. Um, and I guess arguably it's not got anything to make people really delighted and happy with it. It just sits nicely in that kind of Goldilocks zone for me as a D&D fan. Um, and it, it's really easy to get people to play it. So I think five years into its life, whether you like elements of the system or, or not, it's damn easy to get a game together. And, and when we do it, when, when Matt's up for running something or I'm up for running something, we always seem to be able to get people to agree on D&D. Um, I'm going on my holidays tomorrow and I'm taking some D&D stuff because it's just so easy to get to the table and get people to roll dice and start. So there's no inertia with D&D 5e. I think that's my favourite thing. Yeah, but do you think that that's inherent in in the current version of the rules as written? Or do you just think that's inherent in the fact that it's the current version? Well, a game's more than just its rules, I think. Um, I think that's always been true. But now with the days of online play, social media, the experience of playing a role-playing game, you've got, you're getting a whole culture on the go, aren't you? Um, I don't know whether... You know the, uh, the the fact it's got an advantage mechanic. I don't know if that's the thing that makes it easy to get a game going. You know, I'm, I'm not sure it does. That those are just bits of system that knock along in the background. So the fact that Wizards of the Coast are publishing it is kind of is kind of a big deal to a lot of people. It's the official brand. So even when it was like a brand like Fourth Edition, and people lots of people didn't like that edition for loads of different reasons. Um, but there was no, no denying that it was very, very popular because it was published by Wizards of the Coast. So, you know, that's one of the things that makes it makes it a gameable game. Hmm. You see, I think all of those things are valid for, for any version of D&D as a statement. So I, 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 I struggle with the current version of D&D because it doesn't quite meet the expectations that I really wished it did, did have. Um mm-hmm. I remember a, a year or so back trying to run a group of people who'd never played D&D before. Uh, and a bit like you, I kind of thought, well, D&D, let's do that. You know, you, you and me can spool up a game almost instantaneously. Mm-hmm. How hard can it be? Apparently, really, really, really hard when no one understands anything about the system. It is one of the most esoteric, difficult to teach systems ever. And what you end up doing quite frankly uh, and tell me if, if your experiences are different but what I end up doing is just hand waving a whole bunch of stuff and ignoring a whole bunch of the rules which for me feels like not a triumph of the rules but rather a failure of the rules because it means that they, they there's there's elements in there that are superfluous to requirements so yes it does have a really instant kind of boot up feel to it but everyone kind of gets the world everyone kind of gets what D&D means in terms of a game experience, but I don't think the rules enable it, and therefore I don't think it's the best version that it can be. Mm. Is it the best version that's ever been? Maybe. But God help you if you're a brand new player. I'd say that's quite interesting. I'm going to be running some D&D, ideally in a couple of weeks, for some completely new people, so I'll come back with my experiences at that point. I'm just minded of by what you said there. When I was at uh, Worlds, I think 2015 or 2016 for FFG, and there's some guys there who obviously play cards because that's what the, the whole thing was about. But they wanted to play some role playing games, and because it was Netrunner, they kind of wanted to play Shadowrunner. I think that was on fourth edition, I want to say at the time, maybe fifth. I can't quite remember which it was, but it's a big fat form directory book that's a couple of inches thick. Uh, and my advice initially to them was like, no, don't play that. Look at the number of things you've got to read, the rules you've got to get to. Like, there's other editions of games that may be better for you. As you know, my experienced role player wisdom. Uh, was lent to them 
But uh, a few weeks later, they were online going like, oh yeah, we've played the first game of Shadow Realm, we've made characters, it's all great, we're loving it. So, I don't know. It's, it's quite hard, I think, for us to sit back and go, would a new person get this or not? Because I think new people just read everything verbatim and try and do it, as it said, like a IKEA instruction manual for putting a wardrobe together or something. They just do exactly what they're told to do. So maybe, from that perspective, it's perfectly fine. It's an interesting discussion about new gamers, isn't it? Because if we're going to talk about editions... I'm going to suggest that one of the reasons a new edition comes along at all is for that publisher to get new customers. Now, those new customers might have transferred in from a different role-playing game or the previous edition, but there's going to be a big segment of um, of new gamers come along. You know, uh, Wizards of the Coast only do what what Marvel Comics have always done, which is they you know keep finding reasons to have an issue one of Spider-Man so that you can get a whole <laughs> bunch of people to jump on board. Um, yeah. Whether the game is any good for newbies, and Matt suggests it isn't. Uh, that's a completely different subject. You know, we'll get into that if you like. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I could answer that in less than thirty seconds as to whether any game is is approachable by a newbie or not. But I think it's undeniable that Fifth Edition has brought a lot of new role players into the hobby, into the wide hobby. Some of them are still with it. Some of them have moved on to different things. Uh, some of them have probably dropped out. Uh, but it's definitely it, it has injected a, a lot mm-hmm. of blood into the hobby and. And that had to be one of Wizards of the Coast's goals for this edition. I doubt that the main driver for re- releasing a new edition was because they wanted to get Attacks of Opportunity right. But veteran <laughs> gamers like us tend to dwell on those things. <laughs> well, I mean, there, therein lies a, an interesting kind of conversation, which is... Hope so. What, what, <laughs> right? What, what, what are your expectations as a, as a gamer uh, for, for a new edition? Because uh, ultimately, whenever you're pleased or disappointed, it's because your expectations don't match the reality of what's happened. Now, yeah, yeah, yeah. the thing that we need to bear in mind, of course, is, is as you alluded to, what, what, what are Wizards' expectations or needs from a particular product and what, what are the consumers' um, needs and, you know, from that product? And in mm. a perfect world, they'd all line up and everyone would be super happy. But um, I rather suspect, because they're coming from different angles, that that isn't always the case. No, there's going to be a commercial decision from the company's point of view, isn't there? Um, things have changed at Chaosium over the last couple of years. They've got new owners now, uh, and there's you know it's going from strength to strength, which is great. Uh, but for many years, and I used to complain that Call of Cthulhu from versions 1 to 6 is virtually the same game. Anyway, <laughs> Call of Cthulhu, 1st edition to 6th edition, is fundamentally the same game, I would say. But I was told by the, the people that were then in charge that that's where they made all the money. So basically... Editions two to six came out of Cthulhu because that's how Chaosium made some money. The supplements sold relatively few compared to a main book. Mm. So a new edition kept coming out because it was what was keeping Chaosium alive. Now, obviously, they've got a new management team now and everything's they're producing lots of content and they've got a different style. But I think still there at the back of it, there's always that commercial element. That they are actually companies and they need to make some money. And the biggest cash cows for companies are main editions of our game. Yeah, it's got to be true, isn't it? You see it time and time again. I mean, and in the role-playing industry, well, I keep calling it industry, it's a role-playing hobby, isn't it? There's there's mm-hmm. a couple of big players, um, and I think KSCM would be counted as one these days, relatively. And, um, uh, you know, those cash injections that come from new, new releases are, are obviously are really, really welcome, and and, and businesses need that. Um, I, and I think Paizo's release of Pathfinder 2 how much of that is generated by a need to get income? I mean, I don't blame companies for wanting to make a profit at all. I applaud them for wanting to make a profit. Pathfinder 2, there's, a, there's a, I think, perhaps a discussion to be had about what the motives are for Pathfinder 2. 
which is just out now. Um, and whether it's worked or not, I think it's probably too early to say, isn't it? We would never have the metrics for whether it's worked or not anyway. Um, but there's there's a business that, that were kind of a bit, a little bit straitjacketed by their own success because Pathfinder 1 was the edition for people who didn't want a new edition. <laughs> so <laughs> they didn't want 4th edition by Watsi. They wanted to carry on with their existing game. They were very conservative um, as, a, as a customer base and, and were really, really happy with what they wanted and wanted more of that. So for that customer base, I wonder what that feels like to then be confronted with an upgrade, which was maybe asked for by some of them, maybe not by others. Uh, uh, interestingly, I saw, I think it was Jason Bullman, or it might have been James Jacobs, one of the top guys at Paizo, was tweeting recently and, and basically asking people to calm down about it and not be so negative about Pathfinder 2 from his current customer base and could you know they stop dragging Pathfinder's name through the mud across the internet because they could carry on playing first edition it's like oh man have you not Uh-oh. paid any attention to role playing before in your life I mean <laughs> danger Will Robinson yeah. his first rodeo wasn't it yeah. <laughs> it's definitely oh his first goodness. rodeo <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because here's a here's a hypothetical question um do you think Pathfinder would exist nowadays if uh, if Watsi hadn't have done such a brave thing that they did with Fourth Edition? And Pathfinder came about specifically because of that, absolutely mm. specific, and well, specifically because of the cancellation of the license for Dragon Magazine. So you know, for Paizo to continue publishing, and they already had a lot of skin in the game at that point as a third party. But I mean, hardly even a third party because they were publishing Dragon Magazine for goodness' sake. They were essentially a joint publisher of D and D. I mean, for them to continue as a business, they needed a rule set to continue their business with. And that's where Pathfinder came from, to allow them to carry on printing and publishing their stuff. Um, right, and, but don't forget, know, business, a business needs customers. So, with you know, they, they could all desperately want to publish it, but if no one wants it because they're too busy enjoying D&D 4, mm. then, then Pathfinder wouldn't have existed, right? Well, it wouldn't have been successful, and and it, it was off the back of that. So you, I think you're right there, mate. I think there was, you know, hundreds of thousands of people decided not to upgrade, and there's a sensitive word, to the new edition of official D&D, and wanted to stay with Pathfinder because of reasons, lots of good reasons. And, um, yeah, that's what made them successful. So they must be a little bit bum-squinchy time about releasing a new version of a game that was designed to not change. Yeah. And you, I, I don't know, I think it must come to a commercial decision, like you said, they can't have been sat there thinking, how can we perfect Pathfinder? Because it was, you know, it's been great for years, but it's not yeah. quite right. What's going to make the fans happy? Because everybody having to buy all the books they've already got again is not something that makes them happy. So that's right. It's purely going to be down to Paizo needing to a cash injection, I would have thought. I mean, they yeah. want to make it better and they want to, you know, improve and increase all the level of artwork and all that kind of stuff. That's, you know, obviously goes in part and parcel, but it's got to come down to you need some cash. Well, I mean, also look at, I mean, I, and bear in mind for the record, I don't have any insider knowledge on this, but, you know, I look at it and see um, a company that had a reasonably decent market share, and that market share is being massively attacked by the success of D&D. Mm. And, and there is a threat, a real and present threat um, to, to Pathfinder because it has such a massive overlap with the same core experience that Dungeons and Dragons offers you. So they had to do something to, to reinvigorate their line. Um, not not least of which is re-monetize their existing users. It is I hate to use kind of management speak on, on you because it kind of 
tastes like ashes in my mouth, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's true, unfortunately. It's, that's that, that's got to be where the money comes from, though, isn't it? I, can't, I think we mentioned in a, a brief chat before the podcast was recording, but like, I can't see how new people are coming to role-playing via the route of Pathfinder 2 or thinking, because it's got two after it, for starters. So if I was coming to a game, <laughs> I don't want to start with the sequel. I want to know what the original book is, you know what I mean? Like, D&D is so pervasive, if you're coming into the hobby at all, I'd go as far as say ninety-five to ninety-nine percent of people come in by D and D. Yeah. Um, so you've got to be only really capturing your old market, I would think, by producing something like that. Well, and this is so. This is the other thing. And again, so apologies in advance for management speak, but you know there are there is a difference between customers and users of your product. Customers are people who give you money uh, and actively give you money. And as a business, you kind of need them. Otherwise, you you can't carry on making lovely stuff. Um, and the nature of role playing games, unfortunately, is it's very easy to become a, a passive user rather than an, an active customer. Simply because, I mean, I don't know about the pace of... Well, I do know about the pace of your games, uh, Gaz. You, you move at lightning speed, but certainly the pace that Baz and I tend to operate at, one, one module could last us for four years. <laughs> Not bad customers. <laughs> we are bad customers. Well, that's why I go out my way to buy absolutely everything and have it pristine on my shelf for that magical mystery time when, when, when I get round to playing it. <laughs> yeah. When you're on your second or third life, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Please bury me with all of these books. I might, I might be here a while, like a pharaoh, <laughs> like a Viking longship. <laughs> with Pathfinder, what's uh, it doesn't have two on the cover, of course, and no. and D and D fifth edition doesn't have fifth edition on the cover either. It's um, I mean, they're quite clever like that. But I mean, I mean, Matt, you'll have some insight on this if you can go back into your past mm. with video games. It kind yep. of it, I don't play a lot of video games, so it kind of surprises me when I see TV adverts for them because I can't imagine that people play them, but they do. And um, and you'll see stuff like uh, I, I'll get this horribly wrong now, but they're quite happy to put a numeral on a video game, and it won't necessarily bear a huge amount of relation to the previous iteration of it because that's not how it works in video games, is it? Like Fallout Four is a completely different thing to. Fallout 2, and I might have my examples wrong here, but they don't mind putting a number on there because they because its customer base sees it as a standalone thing to have or not have. Is that fair? Well, I think I, th- I think there is parallels that you can draw with with RPGs, but largely uh, an indication of a higher number um, on a on a video game means that that developer has worked longer on it, and therefore that product, you know, the later version should be the better version. Right. Certainly, in terms of you know, hardware and software advances, uh, that, that would be true. Um, you know, we could, we could side quest into talking about video game sequels and, you know, for the next couple of hours. But, um, I think they, they, they are less prone to, to trying to appeal to newbies and they are really looking to, it's interesting, actually. I think it's, I think it's like an inverted funnel. Um, you've got the core, the core base that talk about it excitedly, like the new Call of Duty coming out, and then there's those people who've heard of Call of Duty because there's been like six or seven or eight different versions of it, and then they mm. just go out and buy the one with the highest number on it. Right. So, but maybe if we took that across to role playing games, so I suppose Gaz in our world of role playing, is there an argument to say that if you get the one with the highest number on it, it's got the best game tech inside it? It's got you know the neatest new dice mechanics and the up to date modern way of playing <laughs> no <laughs> well, and, and, and that there kind of almost comes quite quite circular back to sort of me feeling that D&D 5 isn't the best game that it could be 
Right, right. So the, the interesting point for me I wanted to make there is you were saying that like Pathfinder just says Pathfinder on it, for example. Yeah. But we live in a digital age, and if you go online and start speaking about Warhammer, for example, the mm. hashtag is most often Warfrock 4E rather than it's just WRP. Yeah. And Vampire is V5. It's not mm-hmm. just Vampire, which is what Vampire's called. I'm sure Pathfinder will be the same. I've not really checked out the hashtags for that. I'm pretty sure I've seen some twos, though. So I think it's, although the books themselves might have the same colours, I think most people are consuming stuff and hearing about it online first. Mm. Or even if the mates are talking about it, they'll Google it to see what it's about, and then you see all the additions. So um, to address your point about is the latest one the best, um, that depends. So something like Call of Cthulhu, I would say yes, because as I previously explained, one to six were very similar. Seven's actually mm. got some new rules in it and some changes. A lot of them are optional rules because when it went to wide playtesting, a lot of the grognoids didn't like the new stuff and got very upset by it, so they've made them optional just so they didn't upset people, which is a weird thing because the rules are still there. They're just not 100% <laughs> official. Maybe by version 8, they will become real rules and rather than optional rules, but that sort of relates um, an interesting... Uh, dichotomy you've got there for designing a new game is how much do you change it and you're going to alienate some people while making things better in inverted commas for new people or perhaps as you as designers see the game and wanting to progress it. Mm. I think the guys who wrote Cthulhu from speaking to them would have gone further and I you know as a, a, an alpha player tester I, I would have suggested more change as well I'd have been on board with that but I think the market wasn't ready for it based on the wide broader player testing they did. Mm. And then you have other games like uh, Warhammer for example that we've mentioned which Second edition is slightly different to first, but there's a lot of similarities. Third edition was a whole new publisher and did something completely different. And the majority of people didn't like it, but some people thought it was really good. He perhaps went into one before. Mm-hmm. And then fourth has gone back to being something like first and second mixed together. And yeah. you know, it's a whole new game again, so it's kind of gone all the place. And I think Legend of the Five Rings is the same, that the first edition was quite um, light. And then second edition, they messed about with the roll and keep system and upset a lot of people. So third edition, they went back to the original, but with more complication. Fourth was supposed to be streamlined, but was actually more or less as complicated as third. And now we're at FFG's version, which uses funny dice and does stuff completely differently, Mm. but gets things like the rings involved, which in a game called Legend of the Five Rings, you think would be quite important. So there's some games that seem to like be more or less stable and change by inches, like turning around an oil tanker, and others that kind of go up and down like a, a sine wave, changing all kinds of mechanics and stuff, but is anyone better than another? That comes down to personal preference, doesn't it? Depends what you thought of the previous edition, doesn't it? It depends where you come from, I guess. If if your vector into the new edition of a game is as a fan of the one that's just about to be made obsolete, in scare quotes, you're going to have a different feeling about it to the person who just wanders into a hobby shop or gets involved in an online conversation and wants to, wants to buy a game. And people... Despite Grognar's best efforts, aren't going to they're not going to be able to go and pick up basic D and D very readily, even though <laughs> they are. But you know what I mean. That you know, yeah. people will say you want the Moldvay edition, mate. That's the best one. It's like, yeah, but I just want to go on Amazon, and I can't see that there. So you know, leave me alone, old man. Quite <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well. So interesting. The Five Rings for me, I think like first edition and the the current new one might be good. Hmm. And you know, I, I, there's things to pick from the others possibly. But when I last tried to run it, I sort of used a combination of first, third, and fourth and picking best bits from each. Yeah. And then this new edition is a completely new thing because it's a different company making it and they wanted to use special dice. Um, but feels like it does more of the stuff that the original game said it wanted to be about. 
Hmm. I don't know. It's, it's tough to tell. And then you, I've heard things from uh, John Wick, for example, who, who wrote the original Legend of the Five Rings, and he wanted to make uh, Katana's Lethal. So if yeah. you got hit, you died. That was it. That was going to be the system. <laughs> but various game design people went, no, you can't, that just won't fly. <laughs> I was going to say, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty easy thing to say in his current position in relation to that product, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and, um, like another of his games, 7C, I know like our friend, uh, one of the original smart boys, Pete, he loved it. Absolutely loved it. And that's recently come with a second edition that, again, John Wick's been involved with. But Pete was completely cold to it. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I picked up the second edition. I wasn't that. Um, I was super excited about it. Do you remember, Baz? A couple of years back, when the Kickstarter kind yes. of came out, and then I took it yeah. away on holiday to read it and write some stuff, and then went, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, not as excited. This goes back to uh, Gaz and I were discussing Savage Worlds, another one that's had a reboot, and it comes from the same kind of notion because it's it's rewritten because the d- original designer would prefer to do it a different way, which is a totally valid reason for doing a new edition if you ask me Shane Lacey Hensley wanted to do Savage Worlds because he didn't like the way he did it first time round makes sense. 7C because John Wick didn't really like what he'd done first time round and that again seems completely valid but I don't know how successful that's been in the market because once you've designed something and put it out there it becomes your customers game doesn't it? You know? Yeah I think that's the thing with 7C it seems like he did it again because he didn't like the way he did it the first time round but it turns out that all the fans did <laughs> and they disagree <laughs> yeah. with him <laughs> yeah, not exactly. all obviously I'm sure he sold quite a lot of copies anyway but um, yeah yeah. There's an, there's an interesting um, just going back to that kind of rundown that you did there um, there was an interesting kind of theme that was really coming through it which is Company X tries something imaginary uh, um, um, sorry full of imagination and creativity tries something new pushes in a new direction gets pushed back against, reverts back to the previous type. And you you mentioned about four games that have done that, yeah. which is kind of depressing in many ways. Well, it is a bit. Yeah, it is a bit depressing, isn't it? Because it's definitely true. I mean, it, you got I guess you've got to go through your list of like, why do, why do you get a reboot of a game anyway? Sometimes, I mean, we've already talked about it, it can be the original designer decides they want to upgrade their version. That makes sense. It can be because the publisher wants a cash injection. That makes sense. And obviously there can be more than one reason for doing an upgrade. Sometimes it's because the fans go and buy the game. That's that's another one that I see a lot of, where the original publisher just kind of lets it go. And then some, you know, some really hardcore fans pick it up and they go, yeah, now I've got it. I can do, I can make it the way it was always supposed to be. And there's kind of an evangelist kind of fire behind it as well. Hmm. You know, those games that get supported through the, through the dry years, like um, I guess things like Slay Industries has been over the time, you know, and those and things like Earthdawn, you know, a really you know big favourite of mine from way back in the day that's been on life support due to its fan base largely, and they've had three or four goes at updating it, and I'd argue none of them have been particularly successful, um, you know. So that's, well, that's an opinion, I suppose. Um, but you know, <laughs> when people say, "Do you want to get into Earthdawn?" because they know I love it. They say, what edition? I go, well, I'm a bit ignorant of the later ones, to be honest, but you know, I can just tell you how much fun I had with the first one. I feel a little yeah. bit out of the loop because I don't, I don't need it. Um, so yes. it's a minefield. Earth Dawn, for me, is one where... I mean, we mentioned the roller coaster ride of some games that seem to go up and down all over the place. I think Earth Dawn is the opposite, mm. uh, which is the game that stayed too much the same. So they've changed enough of it to make it irritating that you've got to learn new stuff. <laughs> But not enough to do anything radically different. Mm-hmm. So for me, I'm the same as you. Like having looked, tracked most of the editions, if not all, 
I'd probably play first edition. And in fact, I did when I ran it at a convention a year or two ago. I just ran yeah. first edition because why not? Because the changes that have made to the new ones don't improve it, and it's still as fiddly, and it's still got all the same problems or challenges, shall we call them? It's bug yeah. feature territory, but it's worth pouncing on that actually. So again, going back to kind of managing your expectations, what what would you like them to have done? Because I mean, I, I subscribe to the um, to the design philosophy of uh, take as much out as you possibly can, and when you can't take anything else out, then then the product is ready. But it feels like a lot of these sequels are really falling into the whole feature creep, which is well, we must add something new, um, you know, otherwise otherwise people aren't going to buy it. Um, and certainly, you know, you look at Guildball. Guildball's on its like fifth or sixth kind of version of the rules now, and we are constantly taking things out, still rewording it, taking words out, making it as lean and, a, and as slick as we can. It's still fundamentally the same game that people bought. Well, actually, they didn't buy as a free-to-play game, but you know they were still picking up the, the rule books and still playing the you know the, the the rule set. I think that's that's slightly different though, because you're looking at something that's purely based on its rules, aren't you? Whereas I think from role-playing point of view, a lot of it is comes down to the setting or the supplements or the community around it, stuff like that. Yeah. So, like Earth Dawn, certainly for rules, I can remember one of the editions, I think it was third, where they took out D4s and D20s. So one of the the classic bits of Earth Dawn is the step system. So you have a number that increases from, I think, like two upwards, which is D4 minus two, and then you get steadily increasing die types and combinations of die, and that's quite cool, one of the unique features. So they took out D20s and D4s, but still kept the step system, but that just meant that all the combinations of dice were different now. And it's like, I don't understand why you... There's a reason why I could go into the design notes and check, but it feels like you're keeping all the complexity of the original system you had, but using less dice, but it's still as complicated, and it's now confusing for old people as well who used to play the old game. I don't, you're not adding anything. You've taken something out, but what's your design goal? What, what are you improving? And there's still a massive list of spells, and there's still a massive list of talents, and half the spells don't actually do anything. Why would you have it? Like, dry and wet, so you can make your clothes wet or dry if you're quite out in the rain. <laughs> Who gives a fuck? Compared to Throne of Air or Icy Mason Chain or some of the interesting spells that doesn't go to go. Hmm. It's, um, it's like with Cthulhu, they took out Talk to Fish and things like that. You know, there's a bunch of spells that were in there because... It made sense in the mythos and to have it in the game world, but from a character point of view, or what you might actually interact with, why, why would you care? So I think some companies do take some stuff out, some don't take enough out, and some add bits. Uh, the latest Savage Worlds me and Bowser have talked about quite extensively recently, so I don't want to bang on it too, too much. But that's where they've combined some skills. So you now have athletics, so you don't have to have a separate throwing, climbing, and swimming skill, which is great. But then they've added some more skills in. So the list is actually slightly longer than it started out as, even having taken stuff out. And it just feels like, I'm not sure what that's giving you. It's all one step forward, two steps back, and that'll come down to a personal taste thing about whether the new array of skills suits your needs or not. And if it doesn't, you'll change it anyway. I think um, I think Matt's right that when you see a, a reboot or a new edition of a game, they do tend to be bigger. I think Kickstarter has a part to play with that as well. So right. you end up you do end up with the the new edition of the game that everyone gets excited about gets stretched gold beyond all belief and ends up a much fatter publication in order to appeal to the old fans who want to see something new and they want to see what I guess is value for money. Whereas, I don't know, this counterproductive for yeah. me. The fact that the fact that Pathfinder 2 is 634 pages does not make Jesus. me feel happier than if it was 120. No. Oh, well, I'm absolutely with you on that one. <laughs> It is insane. You could um, you could definitely use it as a self defence, you know, monster <laughs> manual on the front, Pathfinder core rule book on the back, and I think yeah. uh, I think you're safe to go to school in an American school. I'm using uh, 
I'm reading through, sorry, the Ruins of Pauline, or the Pauline setting book for yeah. Earth Dawn at the minute, because I'm going to read it for King of Dungeons as a setting, but that's 160 pages, mm. which is great. That's like, I think at the time that seemed like quite big. <laughs> yeah, that's a big chunk of time to read that, yeah. That's plenty. I read sort of five or ten pages and thought, this is great, and I immediately flipped back to the front again to check. And it was people like Robin Laws and Shane Lancey Hensley and, you know, yeah. all those sort of the same old characters, you know, art by Les Edwards and all that kind of stuff. And you're like, yes, you guys have got this sorted. So I don't know whether some of it comes down to who's writing the game as well and who you give it to. True. Like True. Some some people are just good at writing properly in inverted commas. That's, that sounds disparaging to the people, but mm. getting lots of good ideas in as few words as possible to make a really good, concise product. And I think you're right in terms of the I, I agree with you in terms of like expansions and blow time books for Kickstarters. I think more volume doesn't necessarily mean better. If it was all the same quality, I think you'd be right. But I think what tends to happen is somebody's getting paid by the word, so you get more words, but the amount of content doesn't go up in a linear scale. Yeah. I mean, a, a counterpoint to that is my holiday reading recent has been Unknown Armies 3, which has been sitting on the shelves for quite some time. And I'm a massive fan of Greg Stoltzy and his writing. I mean, I could... Well, I'm about to say I could read it all day. It turns out I can't read it all day, actually. Because <laughs> uh, as brilliant as it is, and it is fantastic, every sentence is an absolute perler, that's one of the games that I think is just, it needs to skip to the bloody end. Because I'm 100 pages in and I'm still in the middle of character creation and it hasn't really got me excited about the world yet. And it's getting me kind of excited about characters because it's Greg Stoltz's writing, which is amazing. But I think he just got he got, he got left to go too far, and it's a three book game in a slipcase for yeah. what is for what is a punchy drama ridden gritty great game that by the time it got to its third edition, clearly it's not unplayable. I wouldn't use a word like that, but I doubt I'm going to finish it. And if I don't finish it, I can't get my players excited about it. It's not going to hit the table. It's an investment to play, isn't it? I think that's the thing. yes, it is. Yeah. And it's got to compete with all the other things that are out there. And there is that that uh, that vintage of game is up against Over the Edge 3. And it's up against the upcoming Blue Planet 2 and Slay Industries 2 and all the other games from the 90s that are bubbling back up for, to compete for my time and attention. It'd be good if games were a bit more accessible. I don't know, we've, we've talked to um, Dennis Detwell and others about this, haven't we? And, and people inside mm. the industry. And they say people still like the big honking book. I think we, we might be swimming against the tide on this one but um, yeah that, that, that's the way it is you mentioned Slay Industries a couple of times there actually have you seen the new quick start rules that are out for I, it? I, I was leaving it to you mate because <laughs> I'm aware it's out there and you were a much bigger fan of it than I was back in the day but yeah I track it from a distance for sure yeah it's one that's been this is one of those you've said has been kept alive by fans and this has been like for decades now not years yeah it has actually yeah. <laughs> it's been a very long time and the new quick start um, is not as bad as the original. <laughs> okay. In terms of system, which is damning with faint praise. It looks a very uh, workaday, you know, run-of-the-mill sort of system. Actually, it's not got me particularly excited. Mm-hmm. And has a couple of bits in it that are, like, you've kind of got a success die, and then you've got a die that works out, you know, how effective it is or how well or badly something goes. So you have to right. hit a target number with one of the dice, and then the rest of them inform you about how well or badly that went. And that works around, if someone's got loads of skills, so they're rolling lots of dice, then the, the, the end result can be more spectacularly good or bad. And mm. I, I, that immediately doesn't... 
Like if someone's really great, if someone's an Olympic level shot, why would they, if they miss, make it more likely to that, that to be a spectacular miss rather than just you know the eight ring rather than the ten ring on a target? Gotcha. Yeah. So the the whole like this design decisions like that in it that obviously I'm not going off a full game, I'm just going off a quick start, but immediately having waited whatever it is, twenty years, this is ridiculous. Uh, it doesn't feel like this, you know, that time's been invested in making a new game. It feels like one that's been invented quite recently, mm. and it looks average. So that seems like one of the games that's going to rest on its setting again rather than its system. So setting setting is another decision you have to make. A well, it's another decision, isn't it? If you've got a game that comes with a built-in big setting, I guess when you come round to thinking about a new edition, one of the drivers for that would be time has moved forward. Whether that be a fantasy game or something like Shadowrun, Matt, you just got all the new Shadowrun stuff, didn't you? I, I assume, I assume it's got Wi-Fi in it these days because <laughs> uh, when I last played it, it didn't. So yes. the, the, I assume the setting has to has to kind of keep up, doesn't it? And like Over the Edge will go forward a few years, and if somebody wants to publish Forgotten Realms uh, with a reboot, they have to think about what's happened in the in between time. So what's going down in Shadowrun Town? Uh, so Shadowrun Town's um, a little bit disappointing, I have to say. I did pick up, um, I picked up the starter set and the um, and the main rule book and a background book uh, while I was at Gen Con. Uh, the starter set's pretty nice, uh, pretty standard sort of stuff. Uh, comes with a bunch of dice in it. Comes with a map and adventure. Uh, quick start rules, which are about 25, 30 pages long, um, and half a dozen character sheets uh, pre pre filled out. So if you've seen the Warhammer um, starter set, it's along those kinds of lines, um, similar yeah. sort of production values, um, which is it's quite nice to see like a good sort of standard being set by some of these bigger companies. Um, and flicking through the QSR, it just felt very familiar while I was reading it. But I thought, oh, okay, maybe, maybe maybe that's a good thing. Um, and then uh, I kind of started having a flick through the main rule book, and uh, there was a couple of new things that they added, which seemed catastrophic to me. Um, uh, the way Stop that they sitting on the fence. No, well, <laughs> you don't pay me to come on here and sit on the fence, my friend. Um, I, I'm going to tell you how it is. They, I just, they just made some really, really bad decisions. My feeling, um, the the way that they manipulate edge, or they they calculate edge in a firefight. Um, edge is calculated on every single action of every single character and it's a cross-reference of your attack value versus their defense value and the attack value and defense values are modulated by relative distance and position behind cover and literally oh my god (laughs) and i'm not even over egging it to make it sound complicated um so i had a little kind of scout online just to sort of see if i could shortcut the the whole kind of painful process of trying to work out what's different from fifth edition Turns out that that is pretty much it. They've they streamlined a few other bits and pieces. Uh, there's a couple of really decent reviews out there um, about Sixth Edition, but um, largely an incredibly disappointing, um, you know, um, experience. To be honest with you, Shadow One's that game that almost every single person that you talk to, they go, "Oh, I love the world. Oh, the setting's amazing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, shame about the system." And um, and you just think, please, why? why why, when there's games like Blades in the Dark and Dust City Outlaws and and you know Powered by the Apocalypse and Dungeon World, what? Why? Just why are you doing these things that feel like I'm living in the '80s again? And it wasn't even fun back then. So, so yeah. So, sorry, Shadow runs a bit of a thumbs down for me. Unfortunately, it's sitting on my shelf looking really pretty with its limited edition cover that I picked up. <laughs> 
I've, I've heard some of the things about the new cyberpunk that's on its way as well in terms of like it's like a really back in the day system again and it's you know it's not really done anything with it and I think I don't know what, what do you do when you're a back in the day game designer you haven't done a lot for a while and then you bring a new game out I think one of the, the kickstarters that I backed recently was Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes but that was mm. that is just the game as it was because if you're going to do something like that if you're going to have the game as it was then just produce the game again just like print it again, you know, so make it available to people. I think that's a perfectly valid choice rather than having to have a second edition or whatever. Right. Well, or, or just do a, um, what did they used to call it? It's like a Redux, isn't it? Or a Director's Edition or something like oh, yeah. that. You know, go through and just have a proper edit because, I mean, Baz, you must, you've gone through this um, personally very recently and I've gone through yeah. this numerous times with, with the games that we've made. Uh, you know, however good you think you are at editing... Um, you never survive first contact with um, you know the first wave of releases, and then you go mm-hmm. oh, and and you look back and you just think if I could change one thing, I would change that typo or that stupid you know page xxx reference, you know, and all all silly things that kind of creep through, and I think it goes back to what what we were talking about earlier, which is expectations of the new system. And why are people doing it? And fundamentally, the simple maths is companies do it because they need the money. Um, players buy it because they love the world and the system and they have expectations. The apple cannot fall far from the tree, as we saw with 4th edition D&D and the other games that you mentioned, because people get upset. And so we end up with fairly derivative kind of semi-sequels. They're not full versions. They're almost like 1.1s, 1.2s, 1.3s. Mm. They're, they're just increments. Um, but they're not even increments that are necessarily improving the core experience, as far as I can see. The core experience of reading this game, getting excited about it, and, and being able to f- feel empowered to, to teach other people the game. Because, I mean, we're all experienced GMs around this this particular microphone. How many of our players actually sit down and read read the damn rules of the game that you're trying to play? Mm-hmm. So that's that's always in the back of my mind when I'm looking at a new edition or a new game. Is It's like... God, how am I going to teach those guys how, how this game plays? That's why we end up playing D&D all the time. You roll D20 and you add a number. That's True. kind of it, you know? Yeah, yeah. I watched the World of Darkness documentary that's on Amazon Prime now, if you've got that, which I thought was interesting. It's, it's quite charming in a way, and it's got a couple of tidbits in there for how the games started and, and the journey they went on. There's nothing too earth-shattering in there, I don't think, but it, it's a nice, gentle journey. A lot of talking heads of like Mike Reinhagen and... Uh, just an Achille and all those kind of people. And I found it very interesting from one point of view that they were talking about Vampire coming along in the 90s uh, and it wasn't about the system, all of a sudden it was about the storytelling. And I thought, mm-hmm. you're having a laugh. Like, <laughs> I've looked at that system. You can play a ghost and there's rules for drowning. Like, how do you drown if you're a ghost? I mean, the, you know, there's, there's that kind of level of detail in it. But obviously, in the imaginations of players at the time, they didn't see the rules of the barrier. I don't know, I've been to lots and all sorts of people who just talk about how many fireballs they can shoot out their ass or whatever else rather than like what's going on in the politics of the game. And it's always seemed like a game that's got a weird tension between the rules not doing what the game's supposed to be about, but people loving the game anyway and playing and talking about it in terms of not the system, which mm. is weird. But that's a, that's a triumph for the setting though, isn't it, surely? Yeah, one of the things that came that I felt the particular curious bit I found was that uh, at one point they produced Vampire the Requiem, which is like the reset. They got to a point where they had Gehenna, which was the thing we talked about from the very first book about this big thing that was going to end the season. They did, and they were like, the Requiem's coming. It's like, oh, brilliant, what's this going to be? And it came out, and it was basically the same game, from what I could tell. 
But a lot of the talking heads on this um, documentary were saying like, oh, it came out and you know, the rules were just much more crunchy. It was more on the rules. And I was like, no, it wasn't. Like, it might be my memory's bad. But I'm pretty sure that when it came out, it seemed to be as mechanically complex as the previous one. But there was obviously something about the writing or the setting or something that people didn't have the same connection with it. And so it's gone back to an old style version now and the, you know, Ken Hite and the rest have, have cleared it up for V5. But it was interesting that V5 came out, and, uh, sorry, the Requiem came out and people were upset by the rules and didn't connect with it. And I, I just don't see it. The storyteller and storytelling and various iterations of those rules have always been too clunky for the role playing style that the game's purportedly about and the way people say they play it. So it's odd that a change, slight change in rules caused people to disconnect. Classic mismatch. There's there's a, a handful of games. Rifts would be one. Shadowrunners, Matt said, would be another. I think World of Darkness. There's a handful of games we just think setting and system just do not do not go well together at all. Mm. And, and, if, and they need completely stripping apart if that's possible and starting again. And I think with World of Darkness, and you know, I dabbled with that as much as anyone did in the 90s. I, and I like to think I've got my ear to the ground with the role-playing hobby. I have no idea where the World of Darkness got to with its various editions and reboots and revised editions and then 20th anniversary editions and all the rest of it. And there's a classic line and then there's three or four publishers involved. And I, I genuinely don't know where it is. So when you were getting excited about V5, two things. First of all, I thought, oh, cool. It's, it's completely retconned and gone back to zero. So it might be a good jumping off point. And also, what happened to numbers two, three, and four? Because <laughs> 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 there's got to be there's got to be a bit of fan service, hasn't it? That calling it again, we come back to numbers V five. It's got to be like you know you've been with us for a long time now. It's like Fast and Furious five. Here we go. This is this will be the one to start watching it. Yeah. Weird. Yeah, there's, there was well, this whole thing with um, the company that do Eve Online, an Icelandic computer game company that that merged with White Wolf, basically, and they were going to be. There's going to be a massive multiplayer online game, and mm. then three or four years pass, and like they sacked all the White Wolf staff basically, and focused on other things. So it was all around that kind of time. Um, so when they when they went from Requiem back to the other one, because sales of Requiem were just weren't good enough, a lot of people mm. bought the core book, and then nobody was buying any supplements, relatively speaking. So they had a big announcement. They got like two thousand people into a hotel, and did a big announcement going, "We're going back. It's going to be." Vampire the Masquerade, going back to that, and it was like it was like the guy on the, the talking head was saying like it was like being a rock star or something at a concert, like everybody's on the feet screaming <laughs> and shouting and cheering, and so obviously that's a, a, system, a system a setting where everybody just wanted the original back. It was just so mm. good and iconic that even twenty years later, people were like no, we just want that. We want what it was originally. We want to keep that, please. Don't try any new fangled stuff. Give us what we had originally. But what is it that they 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 then want to buy it? Because I mean, here's the thing: customers, um, sorry, game. We're all gamers, um, and we all like spending money on our on our hobby. What is it that we actually want then from a from a sequel? Is it just more of the same, and we're just going to keep buying it, <laughs> or or is it something else? Well, I mean, I'd like to think that I, I always kind of like uh, narrow my eyes at um, at the celebration of the announcement of a new edition. And people get more than just excited about it. I, I, I won't even come up with a, a real game, but let's just say it's called, I don't know, Apples and Oranges is the name of the game. And and it's been out of print for like, you know, five or six years and people grew up playing it. And then there's an announcement that someone's picked it up and they're going to be releasing a new edition of Apples and Oranges. And all of a sudden people start going, hey, this is fantastic. We can get back into this. We're, let's get a group together. Let's get playing with it straight away. 
And I just can't help but think, well, why didn't you just play apples and oranges that you had? It's probably on the shelf. You probably see it from where you're typing that. Play that. <laughs> it's available. You've got well, mates. You've got a game table. Play it. Let me answer that with a question in of itself. Um, how many times have you played Netrunner Bass in the last year? Very few. Mm. Very few, mate. Yeah, Still the best and card I, game out there, but it's not absolutely. out there anymore. And that's the trouble. And I'm going to say, I do the same thing, mate. I do, I do exactly the same thing. I pick up Pathfinder. And, you know, I'm not likely to want to play any kind of Blender Pathfinder ever, really, if I'm honest. But I'm certainly not going to get guys together and go, do you want to play Pathfinder 1st Edition when there is a 2nd Edition? <laughs> so I'm not quite sure what it is, but it does make me... It weirds me out very slightly that people get very excited about playing Over the Edge, for example, because it's on Kickstarter. I know that builds up a buzz, but the buzz means the game isn't out yet, but you've got your current game right there and it hasn't been played for ages. What is it about people getting all buzzy about it again that makes you think yeah let's roll it out one more time it'll be brilliant surely it was a brilliant idea yesterday before you heard about the new edition I think you get well I like immediacy so I don't like Kickstarters as a rule <laughs> especially ones that haven't been written so there's that kind of you do get excited <laughs> about something when you know it's coming and you think oh I can't wait for the new edition and then you're going to tell you it's going to be September next year you're like oh fucking hell <laughs> so, you, so you play the old one because like, you know, you're excited by the time the Kickstarter comes around for the other one, you'll have got bored again and want to play something else. But I think it's partly mm. that kind of a new edition's coming and you can't have it quite yet, but you've got the buzz now because you've pulled the books off the shelf and a lot you've been reminded. Yeah. Perhaps. Well, I think it's nostalgia. It's, it's, it's literally why we get so excited about things is we remember cool experiences we had with with it and and we we hope that the new edition is going to recreate those those experiences again. That's why we get so excited about new editions. Mm-hmm. If you're in a hobby, you like buying things for it as well, don't you? I mean, like anglers and fishermen buy, keep buying new flies and fish wheels and hooks and all kinds of stuff they've already got tons of. And the wives or husbands or significant others say, like, well, what are you buying that for? You don't need another rod. So, yeah, yeah but this one's carbon fiber 17 and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. You just like buying stuff for your hobby, don't you? And if it's a new edition, it's something new you can buy because you've bought everything that already exists, clearly. Yeah, it's the same as cycling. I mean, how many you know cyclists do you know that have got more than one bike? Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. many, many bikes costing many, many hundreds or thousands of pounds, depending on how keen they are on it. But um... Or miniatures, mate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> well, there's, there's an element of curiosity as well, isn't there? I got Pathfinder 2 because I was curious. And, you know, even knowing going in that I was probably not going to play it, still wanted to read it, still want to check it out, still want to keep, you know, keep an eye on it. See what's how do you feel now me? you've got it, though, Baz? And you've had a look uh, at it. Have you? Have you? Has your, and your curiosity presumably is somewhat satiated. How do you feel now about uh, that purchase? Not good. Um, it, it was not, well, not an expensive purchase. I went in for the PDF at fifteen dollars, which is right. you know it's, fif- it's basically fifteen quid these days, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's that was a bit strong. But you know, I've, I've bought Paizo stuff before, and um, and and there's large bits of it that I, I, I'd admire it more than like it. I think I described it to you yesterday as thorough. It is one of the most thorough books I've ever seen in my life. Um, And I think it's a reference work, genuinely. I think it's very much a reference work. I tried to read it like a book, stupidly. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work that way at all. Um, I think you have to be playing in a game. I think your vector into playing Pathfinder, I'm not quite sure what it is these days, but it might be organised play or it might be a new beginner's box when they do that. I think their last beginner's box was superb. And I think that this core book is going to be right now is for people who already know the game really well and just want to use it for reference. And in the future, it will be for people who have got their game 
by a different method, learnt how to play it, and then just want to have like the Bible to open at the page they need at the time they need it. Because it's an unwieldy beast to just read from start through to finish. It's There's a lot of repetition, which is what you get from a reference book. It's It's chapters upon chapters of lists which are great for reference, but no good for reading. Uh, it's just intimidating. I, I don't even want to roll up a character from it. And that's sad. Uh, that's pretty damning, actually, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, it's got an alchemist as a class, which just you know ticks a lot of my boxes. I just don't want to do it. And maybe it's because it's off PDF, but I'm certainly not dropping 50, 60 quid on a, on a paper version of it just for more convenience. It, yeah. it, it looks to me like it needs, it needs apps, it needs community, and I suppose if I had a table of people, Matt, you know, if we if we had a bunch of people who said, "Come on, let we don't want to give Pathfinder a try," that would be enough. But you know, without that kind of level of enthusiasm from your table, I put it aside yesterday and I picked up Fifth Edition to roll up some characters from my holiday games. That was it. Yeah. So, to take us in a slightly different direction, then I'm trying to think of uh, good examples. Uh, and one of them I want to bring up is probably the Mutant Year Zero stuff, or oh, the yeah. Free League stuff in, in general. So there was Tales from the Loop, which came out, which is a little bit Stranger Things, and then they brought out Things in the Flood, which was very much like Stranger Things, but with slightly older kids. <laughs> and that was more or less the same game, but slightly tweaked. And for the Year Zero stuff, they've had Gen Lab Alpo, which is anthropomorphic animals, and they've got um, Mechazoid One, which is about robots. And for all the games, what they seem to be doing with uh, them is bringing out basically new games or standalone games, but just tweaking the rules slightly or changing them. And from speaking to Niels at Game Expo, yeah, hopefully I can salvage that audio at some point. It's pretty nasty. But essentially what he's saying is that if he could go back now, he would change things. They've learned a lot. So every time they bring out a Mm. new game or new edition, new something, they've just learned something from the previous ones they've done and just tweak it a little bit and make it specific to that setting and try and make it relevant for the game they're producing. So although the systems are generally quite light, um, maybe Forbidden Lands is a bit more heavy, but they're all fundamentally the same, they're all D6 and looks for sixes, but then have extra bits and pieces that they've done around it. So I think in terms of looking at editions done better, it's, it's basically a game that's been tailored to a specific setting or a specific thing you wanted to do, and that that's a good way of doing it. Hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think so too, mate, because that's like an iteration on its own design, isn't it? It's just getting a bit slicker each way. Um, yeah. And it's repre- the whole core game is represented in every game, isn't it? So, yeah. Well, there's a lot, I, I there's think, a lot to unpack. I think Tales from the Second Edition would be weird. <laughs> hmm. Mm. I think I think what you're saying yeah. there is, 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 is pretty interesting because it's the same core system. There's a familiarity there. There's a, there's a speed of getting into play. If you've played one, you've... you've you, a lot of it is very familiar. Yeah. I'm a huge, huge fan of of, um, of tailoring the system to enhance and resonate with the core DNA of the setting. I think this, I think the system needs to make you. It needs to be part of the setting itself, um, and I, that's why I have a. I'm, I'm not I'm not a huge fan of kind of generic systems. Um, so you know, sort of Savage Worlds versus Deadlands, mm. for example. Um, Deadlands felt like a much better game to me. Um, because it was so embedded with with all the you know the you mm-hmm. know the weird west kind of DNA, but what what it also does is is it gives fan your fans your customers another product to get. It widens their collection. It doesn't keep it narrow because it's not just iterating on the same setting or the same system. 
Um, it's it's expanding the system. It's expanding the settings that you can play that system in. Um, and in each one of them, and this is probably the most important thing I think is is standalone. You can pick up things from the flood, mm. having never played Tales from the Loop or even heard of Tales from the Loop, and it's a perfectly decent system. Mm. Same with Mutant Year Zero. Any of them you could pick up, you know, Gen Lab Alpha or which is um, what White Wolf did in the nineties with Vampire, Werewolf, Mage, etc. That's exactly, exactly the same model, wasn't it? Exactly. One of the games that I thought did quite well with its reboot, and it's a little bit dated now, and it's probably been surpassed, was when Mongoose did Traveller as one of the oldest role-playing games in role-playing game history. Um, that was another one of those classic games that, in my opinion, was a bit hampered by its original setting and system. And um, Mongoose Traveller, I think, was pretty well regarded, and that was in many ways a slimmer book. Gareth Ryder Hanrahan um, wrote that one, in fact. Mm. Um, and that was, I, I still have that on the shelf on the basis that if I ever do want to play a science fiction game, I'll probably pull that one down. It's a really nice little slick book and it's slim and does a universe of science fiction with a, you know, all of the edges kind of rubbed down and made to look a bit smoother and brought up to date so not everyone's just swinging a cutlass around inside a, <laughs> an old diesel flavoured ship. So, yeah, nice job. I mean, of course, since then, it's then gone through bloat hell. And it's yeah. got multiple publishers, and that seems to be what happens, doesn't it? Shrink and then expand, shrink and expand. Yeah, the, the other um, curious thing that I've seen happening, I think with more of the independent games, is stuff like uh, Apocalypse World, for example, got a second edition, and Monster Hearts yeah. did, and various books like that have, and to very little fanfare, it seems. like mm. Even before these games were released, uh, if you imagine things like Blades in the Dark, for example, they have been played the hell out of before they'd even finished. There wasn't even a book yet. There was just some beaters. And all these games were getting played to hell. And by all accounts, the second editions have made things better for each of these games and done the, the filing the edges down and just smoothing things out a little bit. But you, you hear very little about it. And I just, I don't know whether that's, whether the, because they're smaller published games anyway, they are just of their time. And they, they reach a smaller audience, but it seems a second edition for those just doesn't seem to go as far as a brand new indie game of which there seems to be dozens and hundreds. If you listen to like the likes of Lloyd Guyan and uh, Groundhog of mm. Games and all them sort of uh, guys, James Mullen, they're constantly they've got basically a podcast based around what are the best indie games to look at this month because there's so many being released. So perhaps for a small press publisher, a second edition's not really getting you anywhere. You're better off writing a whole new game. I, I don't think that's uh, exclusive to a small publisher, mate. I think I think big publishers need to look at that and think, well, hold on. The, the amount of time and effort it comes to putting in um, to, to develop a second edition or a third edition of, of our particular game, why not make a brand new game instead? Get a whole new customer segment. Oh, well, it's, yeah, I mean, Wizards of the Coast, if, if they're anything to go by, it, arguably the thing that did for them in the 90s was by splitting their own fan base across too many different systems. I mean, there was two ways of playing D&D for a long time, wasn't there, with Advanced yeah. and Basic. And Wizards of the Coast now, they have... Well, Wizards of the Coast now do D&D. You know, they don't have a space game. They don't have a post-apocalyptic game. They're not a game studio in the way that TSR were. Um, and, and you know, you look at Chaosium have product lines. Wizards of the Coast do not. Paizo have two, Starfinder and Pathfinder. But the big boys seem to just focus on I think they they probably think, mate, you know, doing new edition is going to be better for the bank account than a new game. And they're probably right. Yeah, quite possibly. 
the other thing I spotted just just today actually was uh, Lady Blackbird's been out there for some time. Oh yeah, it's got yeah. a lot a lot of implied setting to it. It's really flavorful. A lot of people played it. I've seen it at conventions every year since it was out till including this year. Um, there's actually a, a Magister Lore and a Lord Skurlock out there as well, which are in the same setting but slightly different and geared towards a particular scenario again with pregens and stuff. All right. And I got super excited about that. I've not had a chance to read it because I've only just spotted them. And I don't know why. But that's interesting because that's Lady Blackbird's always one of those games that people say they want more of. They like the, the, the taste of the setting mm. that people have got and the way it plays. People are like, oh, I want more of this. Where's the game? And there still isn't one. There's just a couple more little scenarios that you can get that go with it. Mm. And that, that feels like a game that could do with an edition almost. I mean, I'm sure it'd sell, but clearly the author doesn't want to put the time into making a whole game out of it. It seems like it's more of a, I do this for fun thing. I'm not so just trying to trivialise it by saying that, I think, but it feels like somebody has a good idea and does a scenario out of it, and that's it, rather than trying to put the effort into coming up with a whole big game. Right. Well, it's like um, Jason Statham's Vacation and Honey Heist and all those other one-sheets, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's a cool, yeah. quirky idea. Smash it down. People can buy it for a bit of fun. You don't have to invest a huge amount of time into writing it, and presumably you turn a profit on it. I don't know. Yeah, they're kind of one-and-done games, aren't they? I mean, you know, to go back to one of Matt's questions from ages ago now about what's the driver for picking up a new edition, I guess in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, if I get this one, I'll never have to get another one because this will be the one that solves everything and it will be complete and it will be deep and I'll be playing it for years. And I suppose with your Lady Blackbirds and the other kind of like pamphlet games, yeah, I wouldn't have that sense of completeness about it. I mean, you know, if I was honest with myself, I'm much more likely to get a game of Lady Blackbird played than I am of Pathfinder 2. So maybe I should have done that. That would have been a better investment than my dollars. Yeah, especially as it's free. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're getting close to time, if not slightly over it. The the only other game I wanted to mention uh, really was Pendragon, which I think's on 5.2 maybe version now. Um, that's another game that's barely changed. Uh, hmm. the, the only sort of change that is, has been recently has been... Uh, a game, I think, oh, now then, what's it called? Paladin, I think it's called. It's basically set in Charlemagne's France rather than Arthurian right. Britain, which that again feels like it's not a new edition of Pendragon. It's like a different game because it's going to have a whole different feel to it. So that that's quite clever. But Pendragon feels like one of the games that keeps coming out but maintains the first edition of feel to it. And it's still like, it's perennial. But mm. I don't know, it's got that thing again. Whereas if they brought out a Pendragon 6, I'll be buying it. I don't know why. I've got like several other editions already that are all markedly the same. So even if this one doesn't change, I'm going to want to buy it anyway because it's the new one. So what do we think yeah. about that? Like, Even if you think it's not sold, it's just like it's your game and it's something you invested in. So you get it anyway. Yeah, you do, don't you? You know, We're all collectors apart from being gamers and apart from being content creators and all the rest of it. You're a collector. You know, you're a hobbyist. Mm. And I think with stuff like Pendragon... Um, and I was going to suggest another game, then it's gone out of my mind. But those ones that don't naturally change too much on the inside, it's like buying reissues of your favourite album, isn't it? With a mm. gold foil cover on it, uh, or novels that are collected in hardback instead of just in the paperback. New trade dress is enough to make you want to get it. And interestingly for me, I think Wizard of the Coast do that with, with D&D. They're never going to put a sixth edition on something, I don't think. I could be wrong on that one, but they're, they're quite happy to put a new cover around it, and Dungeon Crawl Classics does the same thing. I've got three copies of Dungeon Crawl Classics. They are not even 
remote that they are identical on the inside <laughs> they are just different covers and, and i've not been conned i've went into that eyes open it's like get it with this cover on it this one's painted by jeff easley oh cool you know it's a two inch thick book I don't, <laughs> and, you can't, and you can't tell the difference from the spine i don't know why i do it so so here's a like uh, maybe taking us too deep uh, philosophically but that's that sounds like I think I feel like um, gamers we're we're badly trained and we have been for the last twenty or thirty years and we and by that I mean uh, we've been badly trained in, into effectively a linear business model, which is where someone creates something, sells it, and then it gets replaced, you know, eventually, and that's the yeah. way that they they make their money. And and I feel like you know not just for role playing but for many industries for for the planet to kind of carry on spinning around the earth uh, around the sun. Uh, we're going to start needing to look at sort of circular business models, and I wonder if that's the new frontier for role-playing games. Is when when you start looking at you know a, a monthly subscription. Let's say let's say I come up with the best role-playing game that you've ever played in your damn life, and it's absolutely free, but it's going to cost you ninety nine p per month, and for that you get access to all of my wondrous library of of assets, of artwork, and scenarios, and monsters, and and all that kind of jazz. And the minute you don't pay the 99p, you don't get access to it anymore. It's just online. Mm. Um, That's like the D&D Beyond type model, isn't it? Kind of. But but there's no... Patreon or things like that. Yeah, there's no consumerism there. You're literally paying to use a service, um, and and it's there for as long as you want to use it. Um, It feels like a business model that's definitely, like you say, it's it's been tried before, but I I feel like that's something that that could be interesting. Uh, Because I think think the problem with, with... the problem with versioning it is is largely it's, it's driven by finances, um, and we we fall we fall for it every time because we are collectors, we are gamers, and we are trained in a linear business model um, to to really fear missing out of a of a new edition. But mm. fundamentally, we don't need the new system unless the system is better. What we need is we need new new content, new artwork, new things to kind of re-engage us and our players to make them excited about a game again to bring it to the table. And, you know. We wouldn't be playing Warhammer in our kind of infrequent monthly game if it wasn't for a new edition. It's highly unlikely that, that mm. Gaz, you would have said, That's hey, fair. anyone want to play Warhammer 2nd Edition? Um, well, actually, Dirk and Blythe probably would have. But um... <laughs> Well, there's changes to the new edition that make, that make it better for me. It's the same with Cthulhu 7th. There's ch- enough changes to make it playable again for me that, where I wouldn't play the old edition. Right. But think, but think about those, though. Pounce on those for a second there's enough changes to make it interesting for you. The next step in that sentence is for you to then be able to sell your players on it. Because you can talk about, quite excitedly, about, you know, oh, don't worry about that bad memory of Warhammer. They've, they've polished all that stuff out. Um, and, and it's, you know, a brand new setting, blah, you know, or a brand new sort of system. No. It's, it's about whether I want to run it or not. Because my game, my game is driven from I have to run things to get games, basically. So it's it's not so much it's whether I actually get excited enough to want to run it because there's enough games out there. Like if right. I wanted to play D and D, for example, and not GM, I could definitely get D and D games without even trying. You know, you just throw a stone at the internet, and there's dozens of them. True. So it's it's about whether I get excited about the game and think this is what I want to run. I think right. So you, so you're effectively trying to sell yourself on it. Basically. Yeah, that's, that's it. Rather than the players, I'm trying to sell yeah. myself. Like, do I care yeah. enough about this game? I but I dare say there's other GMs out there who aren't quite as fortunate as you with, with the kind of network that you've got. That, that <laughs> they're going to look at their their 
their merry band of four reprobates and think, how on earth am I going to persuade them to play this game that I've got really excited about because it's a new edition mm. and the artwork's really cool and, and you know, they've done this new bit. You're really you're building a sales pitch up in your head when you talk to your players because you want your players to be jazzed. You want your players to be like Ga- uh, like Baz, sitting there actively wanting to make a character, not mm. sitting there being bored and, and being apathetic as to whether you make a character or not, couldn't care less. That's the worst kind of response. For yeah, a GM, when you're trying to sell the idea of a game to your to your group, I can only fix games. I can't get fix players. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> get better friends. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's. I think the other the other aspect then of where I get my gaming from is conventions. So the other thing is that if I go to come, I've not run Savage Worlds for ages, but that's because there's a new edition coming. And if I go to a convention and run Savage Worlds, I want it to be the adventure edition because that's the current one. I don't want to be rocking up to a convention running uh, two editions ago Savage Worlds because right. in my head, as I'd want it, I want whatever the current thing is. I don't want to be demonstrating to people an old version of a game or different rules or whatever so they get a bit confused if they buy the book. So another driver for me personally, which might apply to everybody, is if you're going to run something for other people, you kind of want to make it current. Do you know what my first ever con game that I played in, and this was only a couple of years ago, it was second edition AD&D. Um... <laughs> <laughs> it was so bad it was so bad what was that setting I was playing in was it Planescape no what's the one where it's um, in a desert and everyone's Dark Sun it's a great Sun. setting I like Dark Sun setting it was a great setting the, the scenario was not good d d is a bit of an outlier with that one isn't it because you can offer at a convention you can name your flavour of d and it's one of the few games you could do that actually it's got an OSR for goodness sake hasn't it you know yeah yeah. It's an interesting enough. The, the whole business of role playing is weird, though. In, if new versions is what it took to make money out of it, then I think the, the the publishers have done very well because, as a pastime, it's so cheap. And as soon as you've bought the game, you don't ever need to trouble the till again till yep. you die. You you could still play AD and D now, and people will be doing that as well. Right. People will take pride in that fact. So, monetizing it at all has been an achievement. Um, but I, I I share your view that it might change. Yeah. The, cons- the the behaviors or the consumer behaviors of role players I've noticed a change you know over the last six or seven years so quite a really small sample that certainly when we first started Steamforged and and were interacting with with role players they very much were the lower spend um, segment yeah. when you look at mini war gamers would think nothing of dropping five hundred quid on a new army if it was the most OP thing and it was going to win them tournaments in their head yeah. right. Um, and then at the other end of the, the extreme was the role players who would literally buy a PHB, a DMG, and maybe an MM between them, and and that would be it. That'd be all the content they would buy. And this is this mm. is backed up from data that you know at the time my business partners ran a successful um, you know online store and, and bricks and mortar store, uh, and and we had access to all the sales figures. But you see over the years, and board gamers kind of sat in the middle. Well, now board gamers have have kind of become the big kids on the block. And, and now they're quite happy to drop three, four hundred pounds on a on a on a cool board game or a number of board games. They have a lot more disposable income that they're willing to invest in their hobby. And I think the high tide is rising all ships. I think the bleed from mini gamers into board gamers and from board gamers into into role players is bringing that sense of being willing to spend a bit more dollar um, on 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 your hobby because that is part of the hobby. People, I've just come back from Gen Con. People literally save for, depending on how lucky they are, weeks, months, even all year, to give themselves the four, five, six, 
700 $800, whatever they, their budget can allow them. But they go there and they are determined to not walk away with any money left. I was standing at a booth and this girl came up and she said, I'm on break, I've got 20 minutes, I've got $100, uh, what can I have? And I, 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 like, no word of a lie. I was just, <laughs> I was just absolutely staggered by it. I mean, it was, you know, it, this was like an art booth. And then I saw another guy spending $800, $800 on dice. And wow. just Right, it's just a staggering <laughs> amount of dice. Right. And they were particularly high quality dice, but it just... So, so consumerism is rife. People are much, much more willing to to spend. So, I guess when you're sitting there on a on a back catalogue of of old titles, the temptation is there for you to, you know, as a business, you have a responsibility to your. It's not. This is the whole thing, right? And I'm always slightly reluctant when I chat with you guys about being too businessy about it. Fundamentally, as a business owner, your responsibility is to your is to the people who work for you to ensure that they they have a safe and reliable, you know, um, job. And to do that, you need to have a business that's healthy. And for a business to be healthy, you need more money coming in than goes out the door. Simple as that. Um, and we all know that deep down, right? Yeah, yeah. I've got another final thought. <laughs> Go on, since sorry. Said that. No, um, Warhammer, we've mentioned. Hmm. And that's interesting from that, that price point you were talking about because they've got a couple of products. One's the starter set, which is a box set with interior art in kind of the lining of the box and dice Ooh. and maps and characters. Uh, really good. And they've got stuff in there about Uber's Reich so that then it extends beyond the starter game that you play, so it's got extensive use. But it's quite cheap for a box set. It's about 23 quid or something. Oh, it's, it's, it's not it's that an, expensive. And, yeah. But then equally, on the other hand, the other thing that um, Cubicle Sunday will be doing is the 10-volume edition of Death on the Reich, which will be 600 quid because it's going to be 10 bucks at 60 quid each, whatever it yeah, is. Yeah, I'm like, 100% buying that, though. Yes, <laughs> so I find it really it's really we keep saying interesting so we need to find a more interesting word than saying interesting all the time but, but it is interesting that there's a product that seems to offer a lot as a box set for a really cheap price point and at the same time the same company is offering basically the same book twice <laughs> two different colours yeah well, like, look, and, and they obviously think there's a market for both those things I, well, I, I think there's a certain degree of loss leader attached to a starter box. You do want to cram as much value into it as you can so people feel like they've got you know, um, acres of opportunity. And it, a lot of this comes down to the same mentality as to why people pick up video games and look on the backs and it's like you know, 400 hours for the main campaign. Well, when was the last time you played a video game for 400 hours? Do me a favour. I'm lucky if I last four hours before I'm on to the next thing. But having the option there, should I fall in love with it, is the thing that, that gives me a deep a degree of comfort um but yeah that 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 warhammer start set is, is phenomenal uh, in terms of the production value that that it offers um and there's years of content in there they've been very very generous with what they put in there i don't know i wasn't really winding up to a particularly stunning point i was just like frothing a little bit over how much i like the cubicle seven work that i've done with warhammer <laughs> that's fine I'm right big fan. i think i think we're at that time but have you any final thoughts before we wrap up I, I can't remember what the original question was now, but I doubt we've solved it. Just like additions. <laughs> <laughs> oh, actually, I've got one more final thought oh, that's God. worth thinking about. Um, <laughs> <Not like Columba. laughs> just one more thing. Um, so what is interesting is is when you look at the uh, frequency with which Wizards release product for 4th edition as compared to what yep. they're doing with 5th edition. And it is noticeably slower, or it certainly was at the beginning of 5th of edition. But I can't help feeling that the pace is picking up slightly. 
um, and the content is coming mm. out a little bit more uh, frequently than it did. Originally, it was like one one book a year or one one adventure book a year or something, and it feels like it's one every sort of six months or so now. Um, mm. What do you guys think? Uh, it is one every six months now, uh, and it, and it actually was before as well. I mean, that first campaign came out in two books, so it was it took a year for the campaign to come out, but it was one every six months. Right. Um, it, it, they've got an interesting idea. <laughs> we keep saying interesting, a thought provoking way of doing their business, which is when people say how much stuff is coming out for D&D, it's not very much. My counter to that would be, well, where are you looking? Because they have <laughs> DMs Guild, and they've got their... They've sure. outsourced. They've outsourced all of their content. Their content's been written by their fans. It's been written by third-party stuff. Um, it's <laughs> it's been written by their fans, and there's a kickback to WotC for it. It's genius in a way. There's never been so much content coming through for 5th edition. It exists in a, a layer above that. The, the money that they make from DMs Guild is... is is neither here nor there what they're actually doing yeah. is creating an incumbent user base of their system and they're funneling mm-hmm. people back to their core products and what's wonderfully exactly. clever is they're keeping their inventory low knowing that they can sell high volumes of, of single products and absolutely and, and they're keeping their design and studio team down to single figures yeah. i mean you know they don't even have to pay on a salary it's, it's really smart you know there's wizards and then there's everybody else I just wish they'd hire an editor to kind of tell them that putting three adventures into the same book doesn't encourage replayability, but is that that might just be my opinion. <laughs> it probably is. It definitely is. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, next time, starter sets. Huh? I think we've, we've, we're writing down a list of future subjects for podcasts here. I've oh, definitely God. got starter boxes on there and the business models. Matt, you're coming back for that. Yes, I love, I love to talk about both of those things. I'm a huge fan of starter sets. Very important product that all companies should be making. To as, cool. to as high a standard as they can. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks for coming on, Matt. It's been a pleasure as always. Thanks for having me. Cheers, mate. And as always, thanks to our loyal patrons who keep us on the air. As uh, as mentioned earlier, the, the pound of the dollar is more or less equal now, so our hosting costs have gone up somehow <laughs> without changing. So thanks to everybody who contributes uh, and also likes, shares, gives us comments and feedback because we love hearing from you. So until next time, it's goodbye from me. And cheerio for me. And it's goodbye from me. Cheers, guys. Thank you.